Let's pray. Holy Spirit, bring your wisdom and your insight. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to draw near to you. Amen. The plain reading of the story found in today's lesson depicts drama of the epic scale. Moses has gone up to be on the mountain to be with God. Forty days have now passed since he disappeared into thick darkness. Forty days have gone by and not a text or an email or a phone call back to the people down at the base of the mountain. Where are you, Moses? The people ask. The people, restless with anxiety, go to Moses' brother, you should know what's happening here, and ask him to help them, big leap here, make a god that will go, go before, before them. Aaron relents to the request, instructing the people to bring their gold, the bounty that they had collected from Egypt, before him. There he fashions a calf, a golden one, out of his own hand. The people respond by declaring to the golden calf, this is the God of Israel, who brought us out of Egypt. (laughs) Say, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) And Aaron, in turn, builds an altar and calls for a festival. And this isn't one with carnival rides. This is (laughs) carnival of the other sort. Meanwhile, up on the mountain, the Lord hears the people and sees what they are doing. Assessing the situation and its ramifications, the Lord burns with anger against his people. The Lord has been replaced. God has been replaced by an image made of gold, shaped by the hand of a man, the brother of Moses. This golden calf is now a conduit of the divine presence. Moses, the one who has been with the Lord for 40 years prior in the wilderness, the one who was chosen by God to lead the people, the one who has been on this mountaintop for 40 days, who now holds in his hand, because if you read the chapters before, holds in the hands the plans for a great tabernacle in which the Lord himself will inhabit Moses, the one who is beginning and deepening in his understanding of who God is, this big story of God, this Moses now reminds God of his covenant. So God relents. This story is crazy on so many fronts. It's a crazy story. 
If I was writing the narrative of God's people and their divine deliverance out, out of Egypt after 40 plus years of enslavement, this chapter, this little section, would not be one that I would include in the storyline. Like, I wouldn't even imagine it. So when I read it, I have a hard time reconciling the presence of God, because this is this journey into the wilderness, God's presence is near. The presence of God who has been near to the people, so much so that there's a fire and there's a cloud that leads and guides, and there's physical gifts of manna and quail and water. How those experiences, and then not to forget this divine parting of the the sea, how these people now in this place, after 40 days, are saying, well, let's build a calf. This is the one that has led us out of Egypt. I want a simple answer to why these people wanted a golden calf. I'm like, I don't get it. So why is it happening? And I want a simple answer to why Aaron, Moses' brother, succumbed to the people's request to build an idol. I I really just want a simple answer. The whole thing leaves me with a gnawing feeling inside my stomach. Like, how did this happen? Is it that the people couldn't wait any longer? Is it that Aaron had no leadership competencies? Or was Aaron's character weak? So he just said yes. He couldn't stand up to them. I've heard those sermons. Maybe you have too. That's not this sermon. Or maybe it is a test. Exodus 20, verses 18 through 23, gives us an important insight. So if we back up now to Exodus 20, this is what it says. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, you, you speak to us, you speak to us, and we will listen. But don't let God directly speak to us, or we will die. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them. Here we go. For God has come this way to test you. And so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. As the people stood in the distance, in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. And the Lord's first words to Moses are these. Say this to the people of Israel. You saw for yourselves that I spoke to you from heaven. Remember, you must not make any idols of silver or gold to rival me. So this is back in Exodus 20. 
based on this passage, when we see this story as a whole, it seems like the Israelites' 40-year sojourn in the wilderness is a test. It is a test. It's not a test with right and wrong answers, though. It's not that kind of test. But it's a test of the metal of the people. Who are they? What do they believe? Who, who is this God? Who, who is Yahweh? Why the people couldn't wait for Moses to come down from the mountain, I, I don't know. I don't know. Was it through their years of hand-to-mouth existence in the land of Egypt where there was images of strange-looking gods all around them and Pharaoh's strong arm ruling the roost? Did they somehow interpret the absence of Moses and now the absence of God up there in the cloud? Did they interpret that as abandonment? had all this other stuff around them all the time. Or was it that 40 days, there's actually some kind of magic number. 40 days was actually too long. It was just too long. We can only wait 39, and 40 is just not. There's something there that happens. For any respectable people to wait for any leader to come back, whether that's human or divine. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. 40 is a big number in... In the Bible, maybe there's something. I don't think that's it. Okay, but maybe object permanence is at play. So what's object permanence for those that haven't had small children in their house for a while? Well, it's it's what a, a child learns. A baby can actually think that his or her caregiver is gone literally gone, when they can't see them. It's a developmental part of parenting and being a child and a baby. When a a baby is young, panic and anxiety can actually set in, like can get right into the core of the child's being. And every child is different, so children have nuances around this part. But that can, you know, that panic and anxiety when the caregiver's not there. Like, okay, Ada, (laughs) they are coming back. She doesn't do that anymore, but, you know, children do this. Hence, we need, kids need consistent caregivers in that first year or two of life. They just need to establish this place that they're coming back. Games like peekaboo. That's why we do peekaboo. Now, I can't be certain. We can't be certain that's what's happening. But I think there's something here that's happening with the people of God and their learning of who this Yahweh is, learning who Moses is. Is there something about those 40 days that here up on the mountain, too, too long, too long, need something, need something tangible, We know something's happening here about some divine being, so let's just fashion one that looks like one we know. Something we can touch. Something that we can see. 
The Lutheran theologian Peter Marty states, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. But conversely, the end of anxiety is the beginning of faith. So when trust has not had a chance to grow in a relationship, and when trouble or questions come, and anxiety levels rise, this is always where my anxiety comes from. Maybe yours comes from the tips of your fingers, but mine comes this way, right from the core of my being all the way up. It usually stops here and then but it's like, it's, it's here, it's in that churning place. When anxiety comes, when the anxiety came for the people, you know, we hit that anxiety place and it's easy to kind of, <laughs> the brain kind of goes trying to manage, manage, manage. So did the people, when they felt that anxiety, like what is happening here? Too long, Moses. Too long, Yahweh. Did the people build some vain imaginings of something, anything, anything to relieve this anxiety now? I'm going to do anything. We're in this desert place and we're left by ourselves. I will do anything to relieve this thing that I now feel. So they did something tangible they could do. And in the middle of that desert place, you add to this this thing called groupthink. There's a whole bunch of people experiencing and thinking the same thing. And so the anxiety compounds and adds. And you're like, okay, let's do something. Oh, yes, let's do something. Let's, oh, yeah, gold, yes, calf, yes, okay, something, something I can see and touch. And Aaron is swept up into all this stuff, and they do it. They do it. Not a good choice, but they do it. So they do it. So I posit there is some anxiety at play, and there is some reason why this happened. Can't read between the lines, but there's something that we know about hum our humanity, we know about how groups work, that could be at play here. But that's not the only question that this text brings forward, which seems, this one seems even maybe a little bit more complicated than the building of the calf itself. And that is that Yahweh, the Lord, is conveyed as short-tempered and very, very, very angry. Very angry. And he's ready to destroy the people in response to their building of the calf. And then you have Moses. He seems like this sane, centered person in the midst of all this crazy chaos. When he is given the opportunity to ditch the people, like, okay, these people are not behaving very well down there. He's given the opportunity. I'm going to, well, okay, I'm out of here too. This is, this is too much for me to have. I'm not leading them anymore. When he's given the opportunity, he says no. Mm -mm. No. And instead, he stays in an active dialogue with God. 
persuading God to change God's mind. No, 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 this is not the way it's going to be. No, no, remember? Remember your covenant, Yahweh. Do you remember? Do you remember what you said? What's going on here? Like, okay, again, I would not script out the story this way. Is this yet another test? Test not right or wrong. Test in terms of, you know, seeing what's inside. Is God helping Moses with his own self-understanding? Who are you, Moses? What's your response going to be here? Now, remember, Moses has spent... 40 days in the presence of God up on on that mountain. And though he too experienced the dark, enveloping cloud, his response, unlike the people's, was a face-to-face, connected, intimate, knowing of Yahweh. In that darkness, his trust was built. His understanding grew deeper. Enough so, enough so, that he did not waver in saying what he thought to God on behalf of the people. He didn't waver. Now, I think a natural reaction for most, if not all of us, is to cower in the face of an angry person. A natural reaction is to run from the voice of an angry divine being. Like find a cave, a rock, something. (laughs) But this is no divine being made in the image of God. This is no divine being who is like other little g-gods. As the psalmist declares, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, slow to anger, and rich in love. This, I think, is the God that Moses met on the mountain and that he is determined, he is determined for the people to know. He's determined they know that God. And in his knowing, he speaks. He challenges the angry voice. Again, Is this a test? According to Walter Brueggemann, Moses' job has two parts. So this is how Walter Brueggemann sees Moses' whole vocational call. Two parts. First is to criticize the empire of Pharaoh and expose its corruption. So he's constantly doing that. And the second is to energize the people to embrace a new mode of living. 
Moses is given an opportunity, just as the people had been, to choose to trust or not. I think there's an intrinsic vulnerability displayed by Moses here. It is different than Aaron and the people. There's no quick fix. There's no easy answer. I mean, God could have a... That's not the God that Moses knew, but he could have. I wonder if Moses was able to be vulnerable with God because God was vulnerable with Moses. I don't know what that means. It's easy to get angry and kind of push away. It's hard to let in, love, walk with, Come near. Moses has a deep knowing of God, and he talks to God and not about God. He's talking to God and not about God. Moses is in that wilderness place, too. You know, it's not like he's in this kind of sanitized bubble. (laughs) He's in the wilderness with these Crazy people. He's learning, too, to lean into God and God's ways to get the Egypt out of him, too. He's learning to trust in a good and generous God who who feeds them manna each day, enough for each day, to know that God's presence is near. He's learning that God's story is one that is of abundance, not of limitation, of scarcity. That God feeds out of bounty. And even in the place of the deepest scarcity, God meets the people with grace. And even when the wait seems long, God is still at work. I do think the amazing part of this story is that God relents. He changes his mind. He just does. Whole nother sermon. (laughs) But God changes his mind. Something to just kind of sit with. So what can we learn from this text? That we're vulnerable in times of darkness and anxiety. We are. We're just vulnerable. It's good to know. We can believe that God has abandoned us and is not with us. But we can do that. As human beings, we can do that. 
And when we're feeling that, abandonment, struggling with object permanence of our God, it's easy to sculpt stories of our own vain imaginations. It's like we, here's the real and here's the unreal. And it's easy when anxiety and darkness hits, we're going to, you know, we're going to try to get something tangible. So we can do that. We're trying to do that. We desire to cling to something that we can see and touch and taste and this is this is this is the real. It's hard to be in that dark place. It's hard to feel that anxiety. Moses combated the vulnerability of imposing darkness and anxiety by moving towards it by moving towards it, actually moving into it. He moved into it. And in that darkness, he trusted God. And in the anxiety of, oh my gosh, what are those people doing? I, I just, in, hum, in a human experience, I would imagine he thought that, even though the text doesn't say that. He moved towards God. He stayed connected to the people. He trusted God. He trusted the story of God. He trusted the purposes of God. So like Moses, even when thick darkness surrounds and cloaks the normal places of divine connection or sacred experience, I say to you, church, it's time to enter the cloud and not back away from it. My anxiety just went like this. But it's time to move in and not away. When people all around us are doing the crazy anxiety dance, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but let me see, what would that look like? Well, I don't know what it would look like for me. I'd just be probably spinning a lot. There'd be a lot of spinning going on. But for all of us, it's probably different. But when people all around us are doing the crazy anxiety dance, whatever that is, it's time to lean into the deep places of remembrance of our identity as God's loved and cared for child. Now, if we don't have those remembrances or knowledges, working a little bit on object permanence, maybe. Ask God to invite you up to the mountain. Ask God to show you his face, the touch of his hand, the breath of his spirit. This text compels me to draw near to God. I mean, it, it's just, it's like, okay, this is like one of the craziest stories <laughs> I have ever preached upon. 
but in it is this beautiful intrinsic truth. Come near, God says. Come and learn from me. Come to learn to trust who I am. No matter how confusing or dark the external circumstance may be. Let's pray. Holy God, come with your your peace and your presence. Grant to us, O oh God, courage to draw near. Teach us who you are. Teach us who we are in you. Amen.